Hey everyone, it's Lindsay. Just wanted to let you guys know that we are going to be doing a limited edition design to benefit Can Do Canines. As you know, Willie is Madison's diabetes assist dog and one of our unofficial show mascots. So in his honor, we are going to be releasing a limited edition design with 100% of the proceeds going to Can Do Canines so the world can get more dogs like Willie. Andu Canines is dedicated to enhancing the quality of life for people with disabilities by creating mutually beneficial partnerships with specially trained dogs. I know this for sure. They also matchmake to make sure that every team is number one and will be the best for you. Our goal is to raise $1,000 to help fund the care and training of another dog just like Willie so someone else's life can be better just as Madison's has been. This limited edition design will be available from November 22nd to December 12th, 2020. Hello and welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. How are you? I am tired, but I am here. Same. You just made me yawn. I'm so sorry. I tried really hard to hide it. I tried really hard to hide it. I hope we probably made all of our listeners do the same. Sorry, guys. <laughs> like even just saying the word is known to trigger the reaction. Kind of funny. The power of words. The power of words. Sorry, side note, side note, side note. Uh, we are going to announce the launch of a design that I am very, very excited about. If you did not already hear it from the top, but I just wanted to give a little more detail to Can Do Canines and why it's so important to me. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in so it's 2009. I was a freshman in college. I was diagnosed super late. Type 1 diabetes is triggered by a gene, like the it's a gene mutation that has to be triggered by something, stress, illness, what have you. Mine was triggered by a bout of the flu. I had influenza A. And, you know, my life kind of changed pretty drastically after my diagnosis. I changed my major. There were some health issue stuff that I had to kind of figure out. But the biggest thing was the kind of fear for me of never being able to live alone. So uh, when I was looking at living alone at the time, I didn't have like the machines I have now that would be really helpful. It, it, It could have you live independently in a more comfortable manner. So I started looking at diabetic alert dogs. And if you don't know what they do... Diabetic alert or diabetic assist, they can smell when your blood sugars are too low or if you're crashing. Um, In my case, Willie can smell when I'm too low. He can also smell when I'm too high, which is bananas. He like has a stricter range of my blood sugars than my endocrinologist, which I think is hilarious. They can get the phone, they can get help, they can go get juice or food. Yes, Willie could open the fridge if I have that rope on my door and I don't just because I don't want him opening the fridge all the time. (laughs) But I wanted something like that. And typically it costs anywhere from $20,000 to $25,000 to raise, like obtain, raise, train and foster and then eventually give away a dog with that amount of skill. And that's $25,000 within two years generally. So it was something I knew I could never afford, especially being like a poor college student with a medical condition. And so actually my father saw Can Do Canines being advertised on a local TV show. And my sister helped me print it out because I didn't have a printer at the time. So I went to her work and she printed out the application for me. And um, I applied, I interviewed. And after some just general making sure that I was, I had the ability to take care of Willie afterwards, I was paired and matched with Willie and he has actually saved my life twice now. So I can actually say that I would not be here without him, which is kind of crazy to say. But one thing I've noticed during COVID, which is kind of a natural progression of things, is funds, funding for Candu Canines has gone down. There are businesses that 
can't match as much as they used to. There are people who would donate every year that can't anymore because they have to save their own money. They lost their jobs or something changed. And so I wanted to make this t-shirt with all of the proceeds going to Can Do Canines just because I, I personally, I can't... <laughs> I can't foot a dog. I can't do the name a dog program because I, I'm the client. I'm one of those people that they're helping. <laughs> and I just don't have that kind of money. But I, I wanted to not only one, selfishly have a shirt with my dog's face on it for the rest of my life, but two, give people the opportunity to donate in a way that is easy, you know, like buying a t-shirt or a tote bag or a coffee mug. Or if you don't want to do that and you want to just click the link and send $5, like literally everything counts. So we just wanted to take this opportunity to help them because they have literally saved my life. And anything we can do to help with our very small but very powerful reach with you beautiful, beautiful listeners is greatly appreciated. Thank you all for letting us do that. And thank you all for giving us the ability to even attempt this. I don't know if I would do this without the podcast. So this week's topic is actually going to be a local-ish story because it's going to take place in Minnesota. Ooh, Minnesota. And it's not so much a crime, but it does involve lots of bad things happening. So Awesome. (laughs) Sometimes that's worse. (laughs) Yeah. So this week, we're going to be talking about the Great Fire of 1894. Oh, the Great Fire. And this is a fucking doozy. So, is it more than one town? Yes. Ooh. So, information was pulled from the following sources a 2019 NPR news article by Andrew Kruger, a 2014 Lake Superior magazine article by Don Larson, Atlas Obscura, the city of Hankley, Hankley Fire Museum website, Massasoit Community College article, I don't know how to say that, M A S S A S O I T. Massois? Going back to that French that I cannot pronounce. Uh, An MNOpedia article by Mary Lane and Wikipedia. There's an MNOpedia. There's an MNOpedia. I really want to put an L in front of that. LMNOpedia. (laughs) (laughs) It's a missed opportunity. (laughs) And links to all these articles will be included in the show notes. Awesome. Great fire. So we also, we kind of heard that it, it might've taken place in Hinkley since it's in their museum. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> in the 1800s, especially along the mighty Mississippi river, the logging industry was an economic boon. Mm-hmm. Like so many others, Hinkley was enjoying similar success until 1894 when everything suddenly changed forever. Uh Oh, In 1870, lumbering companies converged on the area of present-day Mission Creek, Sandstone, Miller, Partridge, Pokagama, and Hinkley, and brought with them lumber camps, railroads, and sawmills, with the first sawmill actually built in 1869. Okay. The area quickly began to prosper, and Hinkley was incorporated in 1885. Oh, congratulations on your incorporation. That's a big deal. Good job, guys. Wow. Located halfway between Duluth and St. Paul, mm-hmm. the town population was between fourteen and 1,500 during the logging season, and wow. the bulk of the residents were recent arrivals from as far away as Sweden and Norway. Oh, cute. Yeah. I suppose it would be a similar climate, so why not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like even in like my neck of the woods, it's very common to see like Swedish and Norwegian type towns and themes. Yep. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them have cute little sister cities in Sweden or no- Norway, yeah. where I'm assuming like the majority of the, the immigrants come from. Yeah. Came from. It's very cute. So Hinkley offered many shops, homes, an opera house, a new brick school building, and a oh. sizable sawmill. Brick school building. That would have been a big deal. So would the opera house. Mm-hmm. Wow. All those always burn down. Darn it. I know. Gosh, <laughs> it's all- Culture. It's all the fabric, the heavy fabric and stuff that they put in there. Well, and they put really weird chemicals on like the curtains and stuff at that 
time in history that wasn't flame retardant. So, um, no, well, they didn't know how to do that. Yeah. They were like, this looks green. Why is it peeling my skin off after I touch it? <laughs> oh, well, it's pretty. <laughs> or like, I didn't realize the dye for this red curtain is extremely flammable. Mm-hmm. Whoops. Who needs to worry about that? Lights, camera, all the flames. <laughs> and Hankley could also be accessed by two different railroads, the Eastern oh. Minnesota and the St. Paul and Duluth railroads. That'd be a big deal, too, having two different options. Yeah. I didn't put it down because I didn't know kind of where to fit it in the story, but they did have, um, so the St. Paul and Duluth line was more like passenger trains. It sounds like it, like almost like a touristy come to Duluth or go to St. Paul. And it was more like, you know, St. Paul all the way up to Superior is um, the routes they would take or like Superior Mm -hmm. to Duluth and then Duluth to St. Paul. And yeah, they would have trains come through like four times a day on a very regular schedule. And it sounds like the other train line was more to move the materials, like the lumber and okay. things like that, and to bring through supplies to keep the town running. That was my understanding based off what I read. Okay. So one was probably more of like a commuter train. Yes. Like an early, early version of commuters. Yes. It was four times a day. That's pre- that is pretty regular. Yeah. I was surprised, especially for like the late 1800s. That's Mm-hmm. Good on them. Yeah. Look at them go. Opera house. I know. Schedule. Trains. Mm-hmm. So before we dive into the fire itself, I need you to be aware of the unique circumstances that laid the groundwork for this deadly and devastating blaze. It was a dog, wasn't it? <laughs> it's always a, a dog. Day. A dog and a boy with like a stick and a hula hoop or something. No, no sticks and hoops. Okay. So between May and September of 1894, the town of Hankley experienced an unprecedented drought with only two inches of rain falling during that time. You're kidding. No. Oh, man. I wonder what their crops looked like that year then. Yeah, it was super hot. Oh, it would have been awful. Super dry. So even if it wasn't a super dry summer, which it very much was, Mm -hmm. you still have to factor in that there was 24 years of logging debris that basically littered the areas around town. And this included branches, bush, wood chips, stumps. So they just were, they were kind of careless in their handling of materials. Yep. And all of that had been bleached and dried out to form pretty much ideal kindling for any sort of fire. Yeah. Well, yeah, if you just leave branches and stuff out on the, on the streets and stuff. Mm-hmm. And a common logging practice at that time was to intentionally burn this debris, but occasionally it would be ignited by either lightning strikes or sparks coming off of the steam locomotives that would come in town. That makes sense. So Saturday, September 1st was just like any other warm fall day in Minnesota. (laughs) It was just like any other day. And this happened. (laughs) And tragedy struck. Oh, man. An unusual number of small fires littered the area, leaving a smoky haze about the town. Oh, I hate that. And this smoky, dusty haze could be seen as far south as St. Paul. Wow. And the smell of smoke lingered everywhere. Mm-hmm. Many of the town residents were employed at that time at Brennan Lumber Company, which was a site spread out over 36 acres that saw over 200,000 board feet of lumber cut on average Every day. That's that's a lot of that's a lot of area. It's a lot of area and a lot of wood. A lot of concentrated wood in one spot. Around 10 a.m., a breeze blew through from the southwest, and by noon it was so strong that Duluth residents were assaulted by ashes and cinders more than 70 miles away. Isn't that crazy? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. This kind of reminds me of the volcano. That was that happened during um, I think it was during the 1800s, too, where like the ash threw everyone into like a perpetual winter. Yeah. And um, that's it's that's the same time where Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein Mm -hmm. and they were in this log cabin in the summer, like dead of summer. And it was cold and dark and cloudy because of the ash in the atmosphere. Yep. That's so crazy how powerful that is and how quickly it manipulates the area. Mm -hmm. 
So the fire that would become known as the Great Fire of 1894 started as two separate smaller fires. And then they high-fived. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> One was south of Mission Creek, which is about 12 miles southwest of Hinckley. And it's, wow. it's believed that it was started from a spark from a rail car on the railroad tracks that soon spread out of control. Oh my gosh. And at this point, so they don't have any water reserves. No. With two inches of rain in the past like six months? Yeah. No, they have like very little water at all. <sighs> okay. All right. So thankfully and miraculously, no lives were lost in Mission Creek, but all the buildings except a log cabin were burnt to the ground. It's weird about the log cabin, but... Yeah. Did that person like buy a... Oh, they wouldn't have lottery tickets at that time. <laughs> no. They should have, if that had been a yeah. thing. Yeah, they should have bought a mine or something. I don't know. A second fire that also started about 12 miles south of Hankley quickly began to burn out of control after man had started burning some logging debris near Browns Hill. So probably to try to manage it. And then it just got out of control. Because at the beginning of the day, like there was no wind. It was like a super still day. There was no breeze. And then around 10 a.m., this breeze started coming through from the south. And that's when stuff started to get a little crazy. Dang. And the fires that started small, but did eventually converge with the help of volatile gases and a temperature inversion, quickly exploded into a cyclonic firestorm, the likes of which wouldn't be seen again until the atomic bombing of Hiroshima on August 6, 1945. Are you kidding? No. There was a flaming cyclone? Several. Oh my god. <laughs> As if tornadoes aren't terrifying enough. Where would you go? <laughs> you can't go anywhere. No. The flames reached a height of 4.5 miles into the sky. Oh, my God. Do you have the kilometers just yes. for, our for our For our other people that are not in the United States, that's 7.25 kilometers. Oh, my God. And to give you an idea of how terrifying this fire was... Residents of Mason City, Iowa, looked north on September 1st and could see a red glow that they believed to be a fire just north of town. And what they didn't realize was that the blaze they were seeing was in fact 215 miles away. Oh my god, yeah, I know where Mason City is and it is nowhere near Hinkley. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, I bet they thought the world was ending too. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. Like, this is the rapture. Because <laughs> the sky was literally red. Yeah. Well, and like, if you live in the area and there are fire cyclones, like literally coming for your house, you'd be like, okay, um, this is the rapture. <laughs> yeah. This is what's happening. So the temperature inversion was described as a blanket of cooler air that trapped the warmer air underneath it. Mm -hmm. And when the first fire started in Mission Creek... The heat and smoke got trapped under this inversion. Oh, man. And as the wind started to increase and the two blazes became one, the heat was so great that it was able to essentially punch a hole through this blanket of cool air. And as the hot air rose up and the cool air shot down to replace it, mm -hmm. it became a perfect firestorm of tornadoes of pure flame. Oh, my God. I don't, I honestly don't know what I would do if I saw a flaming tornado coming at me yeah. or like seeing several just like being created. Cause I've seen like, uh, we were raised in Iowa in the, um, higher end of the quote unquote tornado alley yeah. where we typically see cyclones. We would see a, there would be a tornado at least three every summer, mm -hmm. at least like at a minimum. Mm -hmm. And I've seen funnel clouds like being created and I've seen funnel clouds going like in and out, like just trying to decide if it was going to land on your house. And it is so terrifying. Well, and we've seen ones that kind of like will touch down in like water. So like yes. we've seen like water cyclones, but I can't even fathom the idea of one that's just fire. Yeah. That sounds like something out of like hell. Yeah, I, I bet that's probably what they were thinking was happening is was they were just in hell because mm -hmm. those they were 
probably the majority of like God fearing good Christian people. Yeah. Yeah. And they were like, why is this? Yeah. (laughs) Oh man. I'm laughing because I'm so uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. By the time the fire had decimated Mission Creek and Brook Park to reach Hinckley, the firewall surrounded the town to the south, east, and west. Oh my gosh. Tornadoes of flame rushed ahead of the firewall at speeds that not even the horses were able to outrun. Horses were cooked? Yeah. Oh. And once the mill caught flame, it was basically all over. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because that had debris everywhere for, what, 36 acres? 36 acres and piles of wood. Yeah, which would just have fed the tornadoes even more. Yeah. Oh, my God. Wow. Talk about a random act of, de- of God. <laughs> like, oh, I've shit. Never, I have never heard of anything like this. Wow. Okay. A New York Times article later wrote, quote, not only was every green and living thing licked up by the flames, but the soil itself was blackened and consumed, and the earth torn up in great holes and patches. End quote. Wow. The fire burned 400 square miles, or 350,000 acres, including Hinkley, Mission Creek, Brook Park, Sandstone, Miller, Partridge, and Pokagama within a matter of four hours. Yeah, nobody would have been able to get out. It raised six towns to the ground over the span of four counties. That's insane. The blaze was so hot that kegs of nails melted into solid masses and wheels of parked boxcars fused to the rails of the Eastern Minnesota Railway. Oh my God. And that would have required so much work to get them off. At the core, the fire was over 1,600 degrees Fahrenheit or 871 degrees Celsius. My God. Survivors in Brook Park described that the fire made a rumbling sound as it roared through the town at 2 p.m., decimating it with superheated air and wind-driven fireballs. Yeah. That makes sense. I was I was going to say that, the, I mean, it would be impossible for there not to be some fireballs or like just whatever with the wind too and the tornado, it would pick up something on fire and toss it, creating more fire. Yep. So now we're going to go into like survival stories. <sighs> okay. Which doesn't seem possible, but, but people yeah, did survive. Um, how did they, did they say how it stopped? No, I couldn't see how it stopped. Like, I didn't read anywhere how it, like, just burnt itself out. Because that, I mean, that, with the amount of power and wind and heat and stuff, how did it just end? I have no idea. Because it didn't say anywhere how it stopped. It just, like, as quickly as it started, it ended. So over four hours, it just, it came and went. That's insane. From noon to four, (laughs) it just decimated and then it, it worked like, it worked a half day and then said it was done yep it was like okay i punched out yeah i'm not gonna take a lunch today guys bye wow yeah i want to know how it how it stopped like just even the meteorological reasoning yeah if like the wind stopped or yeah i don't know because there wasn't any waterways that it could have like gone into which would have like no. you know naturally sort of stopped the flames so i i don't know and i dug around a lot and no places listed why it why and how it stopped crazy okay so if anybody's listening and knows this and knows please write in so we can make a comment at our next episode because i really want to know like how did this end what's the science behind it Mm -hmm. it's like fire cyclones and then okay we're done (laughs) yeah they just get sucked back up into the sky and it's like we're done peace out okay Survivor stories. It's going to be really sad. Okay. All right. I'm ready. So some people survived by climbing into wells, although many of these people ended up suffocating due to lack of oxygen. Mm. Yeah. Especially if they're at the bottom because with the the amount of people and heat. Mm -hmm. (sighs) And if the winds would have been like sucking that up. Yeah. When they went through. 
So some 73 residents of Mission Creek survived in the middle of a potato field amid intense heat and flying ash, while others jumped into the Grindstone River. 100 others submerged themselves in what little water remained at the bottom of what is known locally as the pit. (laughs) We had one. (laughs) We had one, too. And it's essentially a gravel pit that ran along the railroad tracks. And this area is now marked by a statue in a memorial park. Wow. So by 3.30 p.m., people were making a desperate run for their lives. Mm -hmm. And at 4 p.m., the evacuation by train began. So two locomotives on the eastern, which was a southbound freight and a passenger train, mm-hmm. both stopped outside of Hinkley with, after poor visibility due to the ominously smoky air caused them to stop. Yeah. The trains hitched themselves together, so like one in front of the other, yep. and traveled in tandem northward to reverse away from the blaze taking with them nearly 500 people escaping the fire, as well as 100 southbound passengers who had been on their way towards St. Paul before being rerouted to escape the fire. Yeah, you can't really call in at that time, say like, hey, I'm not coming into work today. Uh, There are fire cyclones. (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, not everyone was able to escape via train. Worried about the weight of running two trains in tandem over the Kettle River Bridge, the train engineers... Edward Berry and William Best had to make the difficult decision to leave before the intensifying heat caused the rails to buckle. I bet that haunted them for the rest of their lives. After passing through Sandstone, the crew saw that the kettle's steel and timber trestle, which stood 150 feet or 46 meters above the river, was already engulfed in flames. Oh man, that would have been terrifying. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So imagine that completely engulfed in flames as you're nope. like approaching it in a train. Ignoring the conductor's fears that the bridge wouldn't be able to hold their combined weight, they eased the throttles forward and made it across intact. Minutes later, after both locomotives had made it less than 2,000 feet or 210 meters, it crumbled. the wooden legs of the bridge collapsed before it fell into the river below. And soon after that, the entire town of Sandstone was consumed in flames. Wow. Jeez. So the two engineers that were on both trains, William Best, who was the engineer of one of them, set the air brakes to hold off their departure for as long as possible to allow as many of the frantic townspeople to escape as time allowed. Yeah. And Edward Barry, the engineer who ran his train in reverse over the burning Kettle River Bridge, relied on the help of two brakemen to flag him safely across as his eyes were badly damaged by the smoke. And after um, all was said and done, he walked away nearly blind. I bet he did. Yeah. Because you're literally, I mean, you're pushing the train into flames and smoke and debris. And you would probably have to look outside to see what was happening because all of the ash would have covered the windows and you wouldn't have time. Mm -hmm. Jeez. These trains continued to Superior and Duluth, where the survivors were fed and cared for by the residents of both cities. Two other trains arrived in Hinkley to aid in the evacuation efforts. A southbound train on the St. Paul and Duluth line saw engineer Jim Root, who received severe burns while he manned the throttle of the train. Yeah, I bet. They led 300 evacuees to Skunk Lake, which is about five miles north of the blaze, where everyone took refuge in the slimy shallows of the 18 inches of lake water to protect themselves from the immense heat and escape from the train itself, which had caught fire as it rushed to leave town. Yeah. I was wondering, because like with the amount, like the concentrated temperatures Mm -hmm. and the heat and like it would, I was surprised that they hadn't already caught fire. Yeah. Because it would have shattered the windows and everything. Oh, yeah. Tom Sullivan, the conductor of the train, did his best to comfort his terrified passengers as they navigated their way through blinding smoke into the relative safety of the water and the mud. And John Blair, an African-American porter on the train, made repeated trips into the burning coaches to rescue trapped and scared children. And he was the last person to leave the train once he was certain all the passengers had been rescued. Please tell me he got something. He did. And he's had several books written about him. Good. Because that's somebody who, despite probably being treated like absolute trash his entire life, still picked those people. 
Yeah, he's noted in Hinkley at the Fire Museum as a hero for his They all should be. They all are. Yeah. Um, Oh my gosh, I can't imagine. A hero of note is Depot Agent Thomas Dunn, who stated on the telegraph at Central Station in Hinkley, sending warnings to approaching locomotives and asking for help while the fire continued to blaze and rapidly approach the station. His final transmission read, I think I've stayed too long. He died. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he he would have. He was a younger he, guy. He was yeah. like 20s, maybe early 30s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your lungs can only take so much. Smoke inhalation is no joke. I had a friend who fell asleep in a burn. He was sleeping and when his house caught fire and he was hospitalized for like two, three months just for smoke inhalation in like intensive care in the burn unit. Like it's, it's something you don't consider as deadly as it really is. Yeah. By the time the fire had burnt itself out, 418 people had lost their lives with more being found in surrounding first nation communities throughout the rest of the year. And many people were considered lost or missing. Yeah. In fact, the last known victim of the fire wasn't discovered until May of 1898. And that was four years later. Wow. And it is believed that the death toll could actually be as high as 476. That makes sense. Because, like, (laughs) there wouldn't be a good census keeping at that time, especially for First Nations. Well, and, you know, for a logging community, who knows how many of those people who came in were just there for the season. And they wouldn't have actually been living in town, Mm -hmm. you know. Just blowing in for the day, literally, too. Of those that perished, 28 were killed in Pokagama and Brook Park, and around 80 in Sandstone. 100 people suffocated in a swamp, and at least 23 Ojibwe people died on the eastern shore of Malax at their hunting camp. The fire <sighs> had actually melted their firearms. Yeah, I bet. Like, knowing the temperature of the blaze. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it melted nails. Yeah. Into a solid piece. Like that's difficult to do like in forging. Yeah. Like, are you, are you kidding me? And that was just like in, in the open. Oh mm-hmm. my God. It was also noted that Thomas P. Boston Corbett is believed to have perished in the fire as his last known residence was near Hinckley. Corbett is the Union soldier who killed John Wilkes Booth after he'd assassinated Abraham Lincoln. Oh, man. On September 3rd, a state fire relief commission was formed to manage the recovery efforts, and contributions for the survivors came in from all over the world, including 500 pairs of shoes from the Montgomery Ward Company. That's really nice, because yeah, you would you would literally have nothing, yeah, at all, and you would think too, um, just in that time frame. There's no like next day delivery. There's no drone dropping of yeah. supplies. There's no planes coming in mm-hmm. in that fashion. After the fire had burnt itself out, seven brave men crawled out of the gravel pit by the train tracks and traveled by foot to Pine City, which had been spared from the fire. As the town awoke to the horrifying news, they quickly prepared a train loaded with medicine, clothing, and food that headed to what was left of Hankley as soon as 10 p.m. that same night. Wow. Doctors and medical supplies from the north also made its way to Hinkley as soon as tracks were clear. That's amazing. Those who miraculously survived in water, potato fields, and other areas surrounding the devastation were by no means out of the woods. No. (laughs) They lost everything. Many suffered burnt lungs from the hot air, Mm -hmm. eyes swollen shut from the smoke, and badly burnt and blistered limbs. No. And unsurprisingly, a bulk of them also suffered from shock. Yeah. I don't know how many people would just be petrified of all wood and flames, Mm -hmm. like, forever. Yeah. On September 7th, 1894, one week after the fire, the Duluth News Tribune ran lists of where refugees were located to help families reunite. Mm. And although Hinckley did rebuild, it was never the same after the great fire that decimated the town. No. The burned over land, which was cleared of stumps and logging debris, was overhauled and used as farmland. The property loss was staggering, with the Brennan Sawmill alone suffering $600,000 worth of damages, which would now be between 3 and $5 million. Yeah. 
I was just going to say it, it would have been completely devastating. And that's not even factoring in the loss of the surrounding timber. Mm-hmm. Loss of jobs, mm-hmm. everything. An interesting bit of trivia is that even today, if you dig into the earth around Hankley, you can see where the fire line of ash actually was about a foot underground. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's insane. There is a Hinkley Fire Museum you can visit, obviously, when COVID is over. Do they have any, like, virtual videos online? I didn't see any. Mm. The Fire Museum offers a variety of displays and artifacts from before and just after the fire, including a diorama of what Hinkley looked like before it was destroyed. And today, just east of town, you can find the Hinkley Fire Monument that memorializes the 418 confirmed people who perished in the fire. Beneath the obelisk are the four trenches where 248 of the victims are buried. Wow. Yeah, you would have had to do mass graves. Mm-hmm. Awful. To date, in addition to the 1918 Cloquette Fire, where 453 people lost their lives, the Great Hinkley Fire of 1894 is one of the deadliest in Minnesota's history and saw more people die than in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871 where around 300 people perished. Wow. Mm-hmm. You would think that because they were a city, they'd have more. That's insane. A bit of good news that came from this tragedy was the appointment of the first chief fire warden in Minnesota, General C.C. C. Andrews, in 1895. So oh. a, year, a year later, they put together a commission and appointed a fire warden so they can work to prevent such tragedies like this from happening again. Yep. (laughs) And then OSHA was created. (laughs) (laughs) And that is the horrifying and devastating story of the Great Hinkley Fire of 1894. Wow. You know, I don't think I could, I I can't imagine, I literally cannot fathom any of that. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, because you kind of picture it in your head as a movie of like being able to see the fire cyclones. But then you think about it with like the amount of heat and ash already in place, you wouldn't be able to see anything. And it'd just be so devastatingly hot and suffocating in already like summery, post-summer climate. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Awful. Yeah. Wow. Well, thanks for depressing me, Lindsay. <laughs> Super, super interesting, but now I'm just sad. (laughs) Anytime. That's my job. (laughs) Cartoon Dumpster Dive. I'm your host, Joel. And I'm your host, Andrew. Join us as we travel back in time to watch the garbage cartoons from your past. Will you remember them? Maybe. We painstakingly watch every episode of these cartoons to remind you that, hey, some things belong in the past. Our pain is your entertainment. Thanks for tuning in. That's it. That's the trailer. So on that note, I'm going to talk about a funny podcast plug that we have this week. (laughs) Transition. (laughs) Transition. All right. Funny. Let's do it. We'll need this after this. Yeah. So this week's podcast plug is Cartoon Dumpster Dive. This podcast dives deep into the cartoons that time forgot, and some with good reason, such as Biker Mice from Mars, Gargoyles, and many others. Oh my god. I actually, so we had, we didn't really watch Biker Mice from Mars, but we had the toys with like the, they had the coolest motorcycle toys, and I would actually steal the motorcycle and put it on my Barbies, and I was really offended that some people don't know about Biker Mice from Mars. Aren't there, wasn't there a shark one too? Uh, street sharks, street sharks, street sharks. Yeah. They cover that too. Oh my God. I have to listen to that one. Street sharks, street sharks. (laughs) So hosts Andrew and Joel do an awesome job diving deep into the dumpster for obscure trivia episode synopsis and much more. So you don't have to, and they actually like, will watch the episodes. They will find the theme songs. They look into like, who the voice actors were, the company that created it, all this stuff. It is impressive how much research they do when they cover these shows. And actually, I requested a show, and they're going to do it in January, which I'm really excited for. That's so exciting. Oh, my goodness. So, and I cannot remember what the show is called. 
the little cartoon show that I asked him to cover. So it'll be a surprise, a pleasant surprise in January when it comes out. <laughs> because I will have, I've already forgotten what it is. So, um, Perfect. Yeah, so I will definitely make sure that we share that with you guys if you're interested in hearing about an obscure cartoon show from my childhood. Perfect. And this week's listener question is from Ariel of the Malice Podcast. Okay. And she wants to know, how do you select your topics each week? Which <laughs> doesn't really apply to you, Maddie, because you don't select no. them. <laughs> I don't select them. I, I, I like to be surprised by them. Um, but I will say for Halloween, you had me select them. But I, I picked them way before. And um, you, di- you didn't do it in the order I picked them. So I, I still kind of forgot. And was pleasantly surprised. And for August, too, you suggested. Oh, yep. For our birthdays. You picked all the topics. So. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this sounds cool. And then I pick a bunch and then, I, and then I'm like, do, do, do. I forgot already. <laughs> yeah. It's brand new. So what people don't realize is um, our podcast is really the only area of my life where I am extremely OCD about <laughs> keeping track of things. So. I would say a few years before we actually started the podcast, I started putting together a spreadsheet of like a Google Sheets document where I would keep track of like story ideas and links for a potential podcast that I wanted to start sometime in the future. So I actually have a Google Sheet document that has... Almost 300 lines of potential like topic ideas. And yep. and she has them categorized too. Like what's yeah. true crime? What's horror? What's a haunted story? What is like a natural disaster? Yeah. So I horror. have them <laughs> organized by the subject, the main topic, the location of the story, the time mm-hmm. period that it took place in. And then I have like up to 12 uh, columns where I could put reference links. So, um, yeah, this is the only yeah, thing. That's how we do it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I like keep track of all like the post dates, the episode mm-hmm. numbers and titles, what podcasts we're going to plug, um, what ads we're going to run. So it's, I'm actually very proud of it. Yeah, it's really awesome. You do a really phenomenal job. Thank you. And as far as like the topics, thank you. (laughs) I just kind of go through and I try to mix it up. So it's not like two paranormal stories, one right after another, with the exception of Halloween and like October, obviously, if one of the topics that we cover ends up being really dark one week, I try to switch it up with something that's a little bit lighter the following week. Mm hmm. I try not to have too many murder stories one right after another. You try you you try to lighten up. So like if if one topic is particularly dark, the next week we'll have something kind of funny or just strange. Yeah. And I appreciate that. I don't know if the listeners appreciate that, but I kind of being a pseudo listener, like hearing the stories for the first time, I appreciate going from like super horrifying to just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Animal crimes. Yeah. <laughs> That's still one of my favorite episodes. I know, same. Well, and there are already multiple times this year where I have had a certain topic in mind. And then when I started actually doing the research, I just wasn't feeling it at the time. So I ended up swapping it out with something else. It's kind of a jumbling, a juggling game for me. Like it kind of depends on what I feel like researching and writing for the next week. Because like I said, it could be something where I've had it on the schedule for months. And then by the time I get to it, I'm like, you know what? I don't really want to cover this one right now. I'm going to cover something else. So. Never mind. Yeah. And no one, no one's going to really know but me (laughs) what the, you know, planned topic was that week. I mean, like I mentioned last episode with Black Bart, I had planned to cover that one, like probably 10, 15 episodes ago. And then I just pushed it back. Side note, dad was disappointed that I didn't know about it. I knew he would be. I knew he'd be so upset. He was like, I can't believe you. I was like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm looking down. Oh, man. Yep. He was like, I just, how? How? I don't know. How dare you? I know. 
All right. Would you like to talk about something good? Um, my something good is going to be just the worst. It's the t-shirt again. I'm just so excited <laughs> that I get to have merch with my dog's face on it. And then I will see people that I love and care about also have shirts with my dog's face on it and it'll all go to charity. Like that's, pro- that's been my highlight is something that this is something that I've wanted to do for a long time, but I've never had the means to do it. Like even if I were to make a Willie t-shirt, uh, like six people would get it, <laughs> you yeah. know, and I would have to do something strange. But with this, this outlet, this podcast, uh, we have the potential to actually raise some good money. So I'm just really stoked. And it's just such a good picture of him. He just looks so beautiful. And I just, I'm going to get one in every color. I know. Because well, we, um, background of that photo, I was, I was next to him and we did like a, I had, I was starting a new job and they were like, can you send us a picture of you and your dog so we can like share it with the group as like a, this person's starting soon. And <laughs> I was, I was starting at the U in uh, general internal medicine. So it got circulated to like a hundred people or something crazy like that. And it was just me and Willie making like the dumbest happy faces, like with our heads tilted, like, Hey, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's still today. One of my favorite pictures of him. Yeah. That's a really good picture of him. One of my favorites. He's so handsome. He is very handsome. But yeah, that's my favorite thing. What about you? My something good is yesterday which by the time this comes out, it will be like four days ago. I went up north with my oldest to go drop some stuff off for my mother-in-law and also pick up a new dining room set from my sister-in-law. And it's probably the first time that my oldest and I have spent quality one-on-one time together in a really long time. Yeah. And so that was kind of nice to spend literally five hours in the car together and... Just kind of hang out. We were listening to podcasts together. Turns out she's a really big fan of the Truth and Scare podcast. So shout out to you guys, to Cindy and Nico. She really likes you guys. I did have to censor some of the episodes where the murder topics I knew were super dark and I didn't want her to listen to those. Yeah, because she is still young. Yeah, she's 12. So (laughs) I don't need her learning about like (laughs) the toy box killer. Like that's a little bit of a darker topic she doesn't need to know about. Uh, I don't think anybody should know. About, well, we should, but like, no. Yeah. I <laughs> mean, I do. I recognize it. I was like, nope, we're skipping ahead. So, <laughs> but yeah, she really, she really enjoys listening to you guys in your banter. So I'm okay with the swears. It's fine. That's awesome. She's heard worse from like movies and stuff, but it was, Funny. it was good to spend time with her. You know, we had breakfast and lunch together. We joked around about some stuff. So it was really nice quality time with my oldest who, as I said, she's starting to get older for a long time now (laughs) for quarantine and for distance learning. She's had a really bad attitude and we've been at odds 95% of the time. So it was really nice. Well, and that's kind of par for the course too. I feel like if, if I was her age during this time, I would also be like an absolute monster because she thrives on socializing she's a very big social butterfly yeah so it's been particularly hard on her and we've tried to be very understanding and accommodating but we can only do it there's a there's a point once you get (laughs) past that point you're just being an asshole so yeah 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 she's becoming a teenager soon she is and i've had a a very big taste of what that's gonna look like and i'm not (laughs) I'm not a fan, but it was nice to spend some time together where she was my kid again. So that was yep. nice. I bet. So that's well, good. I'm good. glad you get you had that time. Shall we? We shall. You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Yield Crime Pod and on Instagram at Yield Crime Podcast. If you'd like to email us, you can reach out to us at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com with whatever. You feel like sending yeah. us, unless you're going to send us hate mail, which in which case, please don't email us. <laughs> yeah, please don't. <laughs> you want to just be like, hey, how's it going? We might be like, hey. Hey. It's hi. good. How are you? With the R instead of A-R-E. How are you? How are you? I am doing. That's fine. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> this came up recently, and I really wanted to stress 
this. Um, so I know every week we mention our buy me a coffee where you can give us a one-time donation in pretty much any amount and our Patreon where you can join for $5 a month to support the show. But I know because of COVID and everything that not everybody can support us financially. If you really want to help out the show and you just do not have the financial means to do so, please leave us a five-star rating or review. That's a really great way to help out the show. Let people know that you like us, share our podcast with Mm -hmm. your friends, follow us on social media, engage with us. That's literally just as important to us, if not more important to us than any sort of financial contribution you can make to our show. Yeah. The more ratings we have that are positive, the greater visibility we'll have in all the different ways you can listen, like on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, YouTube. Like the more the more you rate and rate us positively, the higher we go up and that visibility alone is incredible and really helpful. Yeah. So like, you know, we're regularly tagged on recommendation posts on Twitter to people who are asking for podcast recommendations. We're tagged regularly on Follow Fridays. And that sort of engagement and that sort of, it really helps. Mm -hmm. And it really, we really truly appreciate it, whether it's from fellow podcasters or whether it's from, you know, just listeners, because it means a lot. It helps get our, get us out there. And, you know, we don't want anybody to feel guilty or like they're not doing enough to support the show because they can't join our Patreon or they can't give us a $3 donation on buying me a coffee. We don't want anybody to feel that way at all. And this is a a free, easy way to support the show and let us know that you care. So I do think moving forward, I would like to start sharing some of the five-star ratings and reviews that we've received on different platforms just as an added way for us to say thank you to the people who support us by listening on a regular basis. So that sounds awesome. And after I just said that, uh, you can buy merch if you want to, (laughs) uh, on T public and they are having another sale. So by the time this episode comes out, there will be a $13 pre-Cyber Week sale on November 24th and 25th, so in time for Black Friday. So if you mm-hmm. want to purchase some merch that's on sale, everything that's not $13 is 35% off. So you can either buy the Willy merch and know that your money is going to support a great organization, or you can buy some of mm-hmm. our other stuff. So yeah, that is also an option to you. I really like our skull t-shirt. I think that's so, such a cool design. Um, yeah. So if, you, if you're if you too hardcore for, to have a golden retriever on your chest, I re- might I recommend the skull? Might I recommend our skelly t-shirts? On that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale. As old as crime. <laughs> <laughs>